Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Magical Musings. Uh, this is episode 24. Um, we're continuing on with terminology and vocabulary this time. Uh, I don't know what series of letters we're going to get to this time, but we're going to keep recording and see how far we can get this time. It's true. And on the other end, we have Brian, as always. Of so course. Go ahead and grab all of your drinks or whatever. Come on in and sit down, and we'll see if we can get through the rest of it this time. <laughs> we'll see how far we get. Well, we all, I mean, we, we got up to... Um, Jeez. <laughs> and uh, the last one we talked about was uh, Jesseth. Uh, next, we're supposed to talk about gra grave goods and iconoclastism, but um, let's not, because those are kind of silly. And let's just well, go, I, on, go on. Grave goods as a general concept, I mean, you can look into an archaeological book um, on any pre-Christian culture and find detail about that. So enjoy that on your own time. It's a good read. And unfortunately, the, the, the lady that came up with this list, and I don't remember who did it. I'd have to look it up on, on Aaron's journal. Um, it says it's not stuff dug up from graves, but unfortunately it is grave goods that are buried with the person. So, I mean, she's saying that it's not, but it is. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately it is a bit of a contradiction. Um, it's it in modern day. It would be the jewelry that your mother was buried with. It would be her dress. It would be the coffin that she was put in. Her necklace, her pearl earrings, things like that. Those are the grave goods that are put with her. In ancient <laughs> times, it's it might have been packets of herbs or tools. If a particular person was a tradesman or a a specialist in like healing, they might have had you know, herbs buried with them or, you know, whatever. There was one um, person that... <laughs> you, you realize, of course, we just said we weren't going to talk about grave goods, And now but... we are, yes. <laughs> of course, that's the way it always works. <laughs> there was a friend of mine who uh, apparently put a vibrator in with the 91-year-old grandmother that they were burying. And when... Um, the daughter was getting too upset. He leaned over and said, hey, did you remember to put the batteries in it? And she just lost it laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to do much good beyond the pair. <laughs> if that thing doesn't turn on. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, the next one that after that that we were supposed to talk about is an incubus. And the flip side is a succubus. Um, most people know what succubi are. Uh, that's the plural. Uh, most that I've encountered, at least, don't know what an incubus is. Um, these are de sex demons, uh, literally. Uh, the succubus and the succubi are female sex demons. The incubus is the male sex demon. And incubus succubus is a really cool band from, like, forever ago. Listen <laughs> to them. Well, they had a, uh, I think they had a, uh, a shoe that was uh, an incubus, too. And then somebody realized that it, they were saying that their shoe was a sex demon. <laughs> and they took hey, it there's off. nothing wrong with a shoe being a sex demon. <laughs> nothing at all. I mean, sex demons need love, too. <laughs> <laughs> Frequently. <laughs> um, according to uh, demonology... These uh, spirits uh, exist to have sex, and that's the only reason that they exist. Well, um, and the funny thing is, too, they were used as an explanation for nocturnal emissions, um, wet dreams in men. Uh, succubi were blamed for that. 
um, because the idea was that they were sucking the essence of the the man out through his penis by having their way with him in his sleep. Yeah, which is why you don't hear about uh, many uh, incubuses, because the the women don't get similar treatment. I mean, they don't have anything to emit except for the blood every month, and you you know that that's going on. (laughs) Well, and I imagine that the whole story of the incubi would have been related to, like, quote, wet dreams in women as well. Um, nighttime orgasms or something along that line. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, there's a psych, there's a whole bundle of psychological <clears throat> things that happen. Um, very vivid uh, sex dreams. I mean, everybody has those at one time or another. Uh, nighttime paralysis. Um, the feeling that somebody is laying on top of you uh, that when you're in bed. The, the, the hag syndrome that you hear a lot about in... Um, Especially rural like areas. Um, there's actually a really interesting documentary that talks about the hag phenomenon um, that was on a Canadian TV show. I think you can find it on YouTube. I'll have to look up the name for that. But all of those were rolled into the same syndrome, um, and that is the nighttime paralysis, the very vivid dreams, and the nocturnal emissions. They came up with a whole collection of demons that did that and only that um, as a way of explaining it because I mean during the Victorian times when masturbation is discouraged looking at your own body uh, I mean you're taking baths in a chemise so that you're still covered you know and you're going to a doctor to have him take a vibrator and jack you off it's you know all of that is it's, it's like what so the the deep shame with all the sex and everything like that, there has to be a reason for the male to have ejaculated all over our satin sheets, you know, throughout the night because I didn't touch him, and of course he wouldn't touch himself, so it must have been a demon. Well, exactly, and I mean, who else is you know that teenage boy going to blame except a demon because touching himself at night is a wrong idea. Mm. So you know he doesn't want to go confess to the priest that he was jerking off rather he would probably prefer to blame a demon the devil made me do it (laughs) (laughs) obviously who else would make you touch yourself i mean yeah (laughs) anyway okay so moving on from sex (laughs) let's talk about sex baby (laughs) anyway there um, is um i'm gonna i'm gonna defer to to brian on these, because he's more into the herbalism than I am. Um, we skipped one uh, further up, uh, and that was elixir. Elixir, and now we're up into infusion. And both of these are an herbalistic process of making something with herbs and liquid. And I'm not too good on that, so Brian. <laughs> okay, so um, I guess I was going to talk about elixirs um, with our alchemical spagyric um, episode at some point. But an elixir is basically the idea of using a plant or sometimes a a gemstone or what have you to draw the essence from that thing into a liquid form that you can ingest to heal. Um, An infusion similarly is, is it's something that's left in water to soak so that you can it's like i want to call it iced tea 
kind of a thing. Um, or tea, yeah. In that you're not technically using boiling water as much as you would be using just water or um, liquor of some form. Uh, usually high high percentage alcohol with generally no flavor. Um, sometimes it would be brandy wine. Sometimes it would be like vodka. It depends on the person making it, but the idea is that it has a high alcohol content. Um, and nobody ever put, you know, alcohol and healing together in the same thing because there's herbs in it. It's not the same thing. Um, well, let's drink and get drunk. Goldschlager. Considering that that's kind of like their old treatment for everything, laudanum, it was like, <laughs> it was a way to get f- fucked up, basically. Oh, you're <laughs> sick? Whiskey. Whatever. It'll help you. <laughs> it's a medicinal sure dose. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Half the bottle? It's okay. You'll yeah. feel better. <laughs> um, anyway, so an elixir, um, in the in the sense it's used in spagyrics, um, generally the idea with it is that what you've done is taken apart um, a particular plant. Say, let's go with. Um, can't think of anything off the top of my head. I want to. I want to use something that's sort of generically healing. Um, Cinnamon. Okay, we'll go with cinnamon, sure. Um, basically, with the, what you've done in spagyrics is that you've taken the cinnamon in its, you know, quote, raw form as bark, basically, and you've, you've burned it to ash in um, a whole setup of apparatus. Um, it, it's really kind of interesting when you look at the alchemical equipment, um, and that's kind of probably why your medieval alchemists had benefactors because getting the equipment meant it had to be custom made. Um, but you know, you're getting beakers and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but the idea is that you've burned this to ash basically, and that's reduced it to its quote salt form, the physical part of it. Um, the, the burning that's taken place, um, the fire, is the um, the mercury of it, um, the spirit, which is basically the transformative concept of it, and the mercury of it, sorry, the sulfur of it is the flame that transforms it from physical to spirit. So the mercury of it um, being the third part, the tria prima, there's three parts in in alchemy that's, that are basically used in spagyrics but the mercury of it is the smoke so that's its pure you know spirit essence kind of thing um and basically what you've done in spagyrics is to take the ash the purified ash of it and you make an elixir by mixing it with water so that you can You've basically purified it to its ultimately pure spirit form. You ingest it as a healing tonic. Um, and it works on the concept of like energetics. So it, it's kind of a fancier form of energy healing because when you look at something like, say, I'm going to go with... Shit, I can't think of it. It's right on the tip of my tongue. It's it's such a comp yarrow, yarrow. 
um, you know, it's got certain properties, and it's if you look into Culpepper, it's aligned with certain planets and you know heavenly bodies and that sort of thing. So basically, the idea with Spagyrex is that you're taking that plant with all its associations and then purifying it into a form that will only use the purified energy of that in a healing tonic that you can use. Um, in other words, everyone, Brian has no clue. <laughs> it's it's hard to explain because, like, there's – alchemy in itself is, is multi-layered. Um, Spagyrix is kind of the plant form of it. Um, but it's – I mean, I'm not as well-versed in it as I want to be, but – like I said, the equipment is expensive. Um, I can imagine. It sounds like you'd need retorts and uh, entire distilling operation. Oh, yeah. And, it's you know, crazy. Chemistry like, shop. It basically is. I mean, what you would find in like a chemistry supply store now is kind of the, the basic apparatus of alchemy. Um, it's obviously because chemistry has come from alchemy that – you know, a lot of the tools that you see in science, you know, beakers. Um, can't remember what the hell the beaked flask thingy is called. I used to want, I used to have it in mind because I wanted to buy one and I could only find one made of brass online. Huh. Um, I but, don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's very, it's like it. A complicated process of burning things to their pure form and then using them to heal through energy. Okay. So if you look at um, things like vitalism or um, there's an author, I think his name is Hanuman, and he's related to homeopathy, I think. Um, basically, he's using that same concept um derived in the middle ages kind of deal where you're using the solar energy of a sun oriented plant to provide the body with you know solar energy or lunar energy or mercury energy or you know what have you um and in that process the idea is it's allegorically purifying the human essence to the pure spirit kind of deal. So it, it's another way of doing the physical transmutation um, that the great work, the magnum opus of mineral alchemy is supposed to do. Because um, spagyrix is considered a lower form of, of alchemy kind of thing because it's only dealing with plants. Well, only dealing with plants has given us just about every medication we have in the in the world at this point. So, well, exactly, and I I think the the sort of the sort of reputation of it being a lesser work um, compared to the mineral form is probably to do with the fact that every you know everyone in you know and their retarded cousin could grow herbs plants. in their garden. Yeah. weeds um whereas someone who wanted to transmute like mercury into gold or you know whatever um some sort of element 
would have to have someone buy it in significant quantities that they could use it over and over again trying to yeah. find that you know transmutation so Doing i think the experimentation that's, uh, and everything yeah yeah so i think that's where the the reputation for it being higher versus lower came from is the expense of it yeah um well, considering that you know uh, green witches and hedge witches were essentially doing that same thing with plants since time begun. <laughs> well, exactly right. Like that's, and I think that's part of it too. Was that it, it was, it was a higher art because you had to be stowed away in a laboratory in some castle or something somewhere in order to do the higher work of the mineral alchemy. And all Whereas, you needed is a witch's uh, still room, you know. Exactly. Anyone else doing it with spagyrics and herbs and stuff could do it in their, you know, basement or, you know, in their <laughs> barn or kitchen. And it would be like essentially doing the same thing, but on a different scale. Yeah, because I imagine that you could fuck up way more with spagyrics and not cause any problems than you could with minerals because yeah i i can't some see of those are poisonous so i really can't see taking mercury and burning it to its absolutely toasted state and then still ingesting it and not dying of mercury poisoning well <laughs> and that's the funny thing too a lot of alchemists died of mercury poisoning because they were working with mercury all the time like and i don't think they really related the two exactly um, until quite late in the whole Middle Ages period, um, because think, well, it's interesting to me that the that it's mad as a hatter, not mad as an alchemist, because <laughs> you know millinery uh, used mercury as part of the felting process to make a hat, and that's why the hatters would go insane. But you're saying that you know they died of mercury poisoning, and that would have driven them insane first. You know, yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, I think there were a lot of industries, though, in that period that used mercury in some way or other, and they probably noticed that there was a bit of brain deterioration in that, you know, in whoever was involved in those. Yes, let's just eat some lead and get it over with. <laughs> okay, moving on. Lead and mercury mixed together in, in drunk in generous quantities. It'll cure something. It'll cure, yeah, it'll cure your life. <laughs> if life bothers you that much, then just mix lead and mercury and drink. Hey, maybe it wasn't hemlock that he ingested, but it was mercury and lead. <laughs> anyway. Maybe. Okay. Um, invocation. There's a lot of confusion as to what invoking is and an invocation is. Um, <laughs> the, the flip side term is evocation uh, and evoking. Now, think about the, the root words. You have E and N. N means to take something from outside and draw it into you. Okay? And evocation is taking a quality from inside of you and displaying it out. Okay? So if you are invoking a deity, you are bringing the deity into you. Okay, a request for the deity's assistance, a uh, practice that produces an awareness of the deity within. Okay, 
you are bringing that deity into you. If you are evoking the deity in an evocation, you are taking the deity within you and pushing it out to everybody around you. Okay. That's Generally, the... evocation refers to like manifesting mm -hmm. spirits outside yourself, summoning demons and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, one of the sort of best examples I can think of for the reference to invoking spirit um, comes out of the movie The Craft, um, where Feruza Balk's character um, is kind of casually discussing, you know, various magical practices with their newbie. Like um, one wit one candle and the entire room lights up. I always wanted to do that. I think that would be a handy thing. It would. <laughs> I mean, she had like 200 candles in there. Like being able to light one of them, they all come on. In Practical Magic, they could blow them out or blow them into flame. I want to be able to do that, too. Hey, on Kung Fu Panda, a uh, little red panda could put hundreds out just by shoving his palm at one. <laughs> In the last airbender. <laughs> they could anyway. take it out of the crucible and just all over. <laughs> oh, God. All right. <laughs> Uh, okay, you were saying reference. about her. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, she she makes a point of asking, "Have you ever heard of invoking the spirit?" And you know, then she kind of orgasmically describes it as, "It's when you draw the spirit into yourself." And and you know, the noob chick is is kind of going, um, "Okay." <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a movie worth watching if you're kind of interested in magical practices because it touches on a lot of them. And once again, take it with a grain of salt. I don't know anybody Obviously. that can uh, float two feet off the floor without wires and a harness. It's true. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because when that movie came out, I remember it being quite the topic of discussion. And, you know, there was debates of whether it was accurately portraying Wicca or not. And, you know, there would be some who were like, oh, fuck yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. It's it's completely perfect. And, you know, others who would be like, um, no, it's heavily Hollywoodized yeah. pseudo-Wicca. The, um, the, the conclusion I finally came to is let's take the fantastic elements, the, the magical Hollywood elements, special effects out, and throw all those out the window. Just yeah. the practice that they were doing, four girls, one sitting at each compass point, summoning up a sea uh, god, and having him give them magical powers. No. That is nothing like what Wicked And is. he won't offer sharks' lives for your, you know, magical dabblings either. You know, and then going crazy and having to be institutionalized. That's not Wicca. First off, there's no goddess. There was just a god. Well, then that had, would be more ceremonial magic, essentially. And then you had four girls, no guys. But you also have to realize, too, I think, that um, at the time, Feruza Balk was actually involved in Wicca. Um, so a lot of what she was reading and that sort of thing, in the movie she was reading a book on Kabbalah um, during one scene where they're sitting in chapel or something at school and that's actually because Feruza Balk was actually reading that stuff you know in that period and that's um, fine and that's, that's I'm sorry go ahead 
Well, I mean, she later bought a, a pagan bookstore called Panpipes that actually became quite popular because it was, you know, it was her store and it, you know, she was attached to the craft and all that kind of stuff. So, um, but yeah, a lot of what's referred to in um, the craft is actually ceremonial magic uh, rather than Wicca. Yeah, but like Wicca itself, there are elements that can be portrayed. Um, understand also that some Wicca traditions are very ceremonial-centered, Gardnerian, Alexandrian amongst them. Uh, many others are not as ceremonial-centered. So the eclectic, the green witch, uh, the kitchen witch uh, type things, that doesn't represent them. So if you're based in uh, ceremonial magic and the Key of Solomon and stuff, yeah, it can be seen as fairly accurate. Uh, but for others, no, not at all. Cause, well, you know, and that's where you get sort of the difference in sort of that green kitchen hedge witch type thing with practical magic yeah. um, as a movie that portrays, you know, kind of that tradition. Um, and it's another of my, you know, all generally Samhain movies it's it's like there's a few c- that i watch every year at Samhain um as, and of course hocus pocus but that has no reference in any case to any style of modern practice that's um, more Salem that's just witch trial thing but yes that's just a fun movie yeah, uh, um, yeah i tend to cr- the craft and um <clears throat> practical magic are two of my go-to movies also. I think that if you watch both of them back-to-back, you can... The fantastical elements that aren't true cancel each other out, and that there's a core inside both of them that's absolutely similar and absolutely true to the spiritual path. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Even down to the the practices of the rituals, um, because I I think once you take out the Hollywood elements... Um, you I mean, get a Sand- really good idea. Sandra Bullock using the the whipped cream to draw a white star on the chest of the person that they're trying to reanimate. You know, every kitchen witch in the world went, "Yeah, that'd work." Every green witch, exactly. Went, yeah, that'd work. And every ceremony, and every witch was going, "What? What? <laughs> exactly." Yeah, like basically the idea in practical magic is that. You know, kitchen witches use what's on hand, and ceremonials in, like, the craft would have their specific tools that you were meant to use for that sort of thing. So you'd probably use, like, chalk or something. Later on in the movie, one of the ladies that comes to participate in one of their rituals brings a dustbuster instead of a broom. Because it's what she had on hand, it's what she uses to clean with. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know... A traditionalist would be like, wait, what the hell is wrong with you? Mm. It's a dustbuster. It's not magic. And a hedge witch or kitchen witch would be like, yeah, that's absolutely right. So we'll find a way to use that in the process of our magic. Yep. Okay. Um, um, next term, labrys. L-A-B-R-Y-S. This is a Greek term for a double-headed axe. There are quite a number of people that associate it with emasculation. Uh, The feminists picked it up and used it for quite some time. It uh, is also the symbol of an ancient Cretan goddess. 
um, but that's what it is. If you use it in your tool selection, uh, typically it would be on the left-hand side of the altar uh, where the goddess resides. Okay. Um, yeah, and it tends to be... I mean, it's the word from which the labyrinth came out of. Um, I, I don't know how they're associated, but it that's basically what happened. Um, yeah, and it's it's been adopted by a lot of Dianics. Yes. Um, uh, it was adopted by the Minerwans. That was uh, they were a small cultish group of super fanatic uh, goddesses, all with a male. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, from, I from love those. About ten fifteen years ago, uh, I've still got their um, book of everything. <laughs> it's interesting. They made fun of. They were made fun of on a cartoon called uh, uh, Nine Tales Many Nine Lives Many Masters. <laughs> anyway, were they really? Yeah. This is a cartoon series. It was a cartoon series about a familiar who wanted to find uh, their um, perfect person that they were supposed to be with. I mean, because they're you know a magical helper. Except all the magical people that they ran into, you know, were fluff bunnies and baby pagans and didn't care about finding the deeper spiritual meanings. And so he takes a job at a, a familiar temp agency. <laughs> and gets rented out to various people for specific jobs. <laughs> it was actually great. What? That's interesting. It was actually great because he, he had a toad in there as another one of the characters. And the toad pulled out a wand that it's just... Abs the, the wand that this toad pulled out had two very large bulbous things at one end and had a crystal at the other end of the tip. And he held it about three-quarters of the way down the shaft towards the bulbous end. And I'm looking at that going, if that's not a phallic symbol, I will eat my pants. Fair <laughs> it enough. looked absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and I, there's a lot of traditions that sort of require you to make your wand in a phallic shape anyway. So it does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so, well... Now, there's an interesting thing. Lemniscuit? No. Um, I'm thinking that if you have a labrys, the, the axe, and you have the athame, and the athame is seen as male because it is penetrative, it goes into the chalice, then the labrys could be seen as the feminine half of the same thing. Double-breasted. Maybe. Double-breasted, well, you know. Because, like, I've heard um, or I've read discussions where the labrys is considered a kind of a stylized bee, um, depending on the context it's used in. But, yeah, it, it makes sense because, I mean, bees, just as a general species, are majority female. So yeah. a stylized well. bee is a labrys. Anybody who has more information that wants to correct us, come on in and send it to us. We'll or let's do a, an episode on Hellenism and you know Greek style paganism, and let's go at length with all those symbols and discussions. Maybe talk to Siannan and see if he'll uh, do an episode with us. Sure. I don't know. 
it, maybe. Okay, lemniscate. Uh, basically, this is the infinity symbol. <laughs> I mean, that's all it is. Well, it's, if you want to take it all non-mystical and shit. Well, I mean, this is that's what this show does. Is we we talk we take the super esoteric mystery thing that confuses everybody all the time and go, this is what it is. When you strip away all the symbolism and you strip away all the ooey ooey shit and strip away all the um, ruminations from your navel, this is what it is. You know, that's, that's what true. we do. <laughs> and it's on the Métis flag in Canada, so I don't know why. Well, the 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 infinity symbol is shown as a symbol of power. It's on quite a number of the um, uh, court or Greater Arcana cards on the tarot deck. It shows that they have a mystical connection. Um, some people have likened it to a Mobius strip. Yes. Because there's a twist on a Mobius strip so that the edge, so it's an eternal, there's one side to it, to it all. And it's if true. you look at it from a different perspective, you, that twist turns into an infinity. Yes. And it's the same thing. <coughs> Um, but it symbolizes connection to a greater power, uh, more mystic power, more psychic power, a more magical power. Actually, um, you know what's funny, too? What? I remember reading as a kid one of those choose-your-own-adventure books, uh-huh. and in it there was, you know, do you choose the Lemniscate ring or do you not? Or no, the Mobius ring or not? And I was like, um, why not? And it, it was like the key to some esoteric puzzle thing that you had to solve was because you chose the Mobius ring. Hmm. And I thought that was kind of an interesting piece of jewelry to have in real life. But I didn't know at the time that it was a lemniscuit, you know, turned into a loop. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's... I've never encountered the term before, so this was, you know, the first time I'd ever heard it. Um, I've heard lemniscuit before, but I... I heard Mobius earlier. Like I didn't relate the two though when I was, you know, first reading about the Mobius strip though. Well, understand that the only reason that I threw in the Mobius strip is when I'm <coughs> looking at the with the normal Mobius strip, you have a circle, you detach it in one area, you twist it around and reattach it. So you have this bend in the middle of it as you're going uh, around the outside. The outside becomes the inside, and then it becomes the outside again. But if you take that same Mobius strip and... And flatten it, it becomes a lemniscuit. Well, yeah, and look at it from the top where that twist is at, and then offset it just a little bit, rotate the left-hand side back and the right-hand side forward, it becomes that lemniscuit. Yes. That's the only reason that I said that. I went, wow, okay. Let's let's talk about that, and then we went off on okay. <laughs> if you want to like see that for yourself, folks, um, just get yourself a strip of paper and you know hold it out, and then give a half twist on one side and put the two ends together, and you'll basically get the idea of the Mobius strip slash lemniscate um, that we're talking about here. And this is why you need to develop also your uh, imagination, your visualization. Because just by talking about it, I can visualize that in my head and what it would look like from different angles. Most people, or a lot of people that I know, aren't able to, to turn that 3D object in their head and examine it from all sides like it was on a computer screen. 
Exactly. And I think that speaks to the concept of spatial intelligence, because I think if you have um, the ability to visualize something in 3D space and to see it from multiple angles, that's kind of what relates to. And it, that's another of those terms from like multiple intelligence concepts. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone's dumb. They just have different intelligence. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, um, next term is mage. Uh, mage is, um, the singular is magus, magus, and the plural is magi. Um, it's a very old term for a wise man. Now, this is specific for man. Um, for a wise woman, it would be uh, spay or witch, or wissa, uh, W-I-C-A. And all of these terms are relate together in that they represent a wise person, somebody with intelligence, somebody with knowledge, somebody that has lived through lots of different things and come out the other side. Okay, um, It has come to mean now that uh, a mage is the male half of the female witch where they are the same thing on two different sides. And that's somebody that has magical power and understanding of the universe and can cause changes in their life. Okay? Since that's what we're trying for is witches and pagans anyway, that's, you know, the term that has come to, to be denoted to us. Mage isn't really used that often anymore to refer to a male pagan. Some traditions may still do it. Um, most often these days, at least with Wiccans, uh, the the term witch is uh, gender non-specific. It it applies to male and female. See, I would imagine too that the majority of people using the term mage as a designation for their paganness are probably coming out of like role-playing groups and that sort of thing because it's not something that I've really heard very often i know magi and you know magus um have existed forever mage i've never heard anyone use specifically and unless they're talking about like you know i played ultima 7 and i was a mage or you know what have you Um, i i think actually some of the secret societies either the rosicrucians and i'm thinking that it's probably uh the uh freemasons have a rank of mage in there now I'm not positive. Um, a friend of I mine. I think it's Magus, actually. I'm pretty sure I've read that somewhere too. Okay, so then I'm not stupid. I think it's the the Order of Demolay, which is the like the teenagers' version of the Masons. <laughs> yes. But um, probably. Yeah, but I, I. Some people still use it, so it's something that you need to to be aware of. It means wise one when you boil it all down to its essential part. Yes. <coughs> okay, a megalith, and um, let's see, uh, is a huge mega, stone man. Big. Megalith, stone. Yeah. Mega, yeah. <laughs> like he just said, mega, big, lith, stone, and a men here. They're both the same thing. A megalith is a construction of large standing stones. A men here, uh, M-E-N-H-I-R, is a single standing stone. Um... Let's see. Everybody knows Stonehenge. Everybody knows Woodhenge. Uh, there are the the. Uh, but here's the question: What what is the 
the thing that makes a hinge a hinge. Oh. Ooh. I think because it's not actually the circle of stones. It's actually no. the, the the cross piece. The of circle, top, isn't it? No, that's that's the lintel across the trilithons. Um, the the thing that makes any sort of ceremonial space or standing stone collection a hinge is actually the the mound ringed by uh, a ditch or vice versa. I think it's a a, a, a ringed mound with a ditch inside it. And then whatever's inside is considered a hinge. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing, but it's like not every cir- like stone circle is actually a hinge. The thing that makes Stonehenge a hinge is the fact that it has a ring of earth with a, a like a, a ringed um, ditch. Okay. Well, Stonehenge is a hinge and a megalith, and uh, the men here would be the uh, keystone at the Hill of Terra. There's just this one rock yes. standing up that's about 20 feet tall, and that is a men here. So now you've got and visuals for them. Since we're getting into that, I mean, we might as well explain Dolmen as well, which okay. is the – it's like a three-part – sort of set up with a, a capstone on the top and it, it they're speculating that they were the insides of grave um grave mounds but you'll see a lot of them in like ireland um that are basically just the stone setup you know so it'll be like three flat stones holding up a capstone an example of it is the uh one that the sun shines through on the solstices in stonehenge uh, especially Yule, uh, there is there's the ring of stones outside with the cat with the capstones on top of them with the lentils, uh, but there's a set of five uh, sets of dolmens uh, inside, uh, and they're shaped in a U. The very middle one, the tallest, it has this gap in it that's maybe an inch wide from the top to the bottom. And the only time the sun shines through there is on the solstice, period. That is uh, a dolmen. That three-rock setup. At least that's my understanding, right? I'm trying to picture Stonehenge, because I haven't really paid that much attention to the interior design of it. Oh, I paid a lot of attention to it. Uh, And speaking of which, if any of you out there... Uh, there's been a lot of uh, recent discoveries in Stonehenge and the surrounding area. Um, they Archaeologists and historians have come to the conclusion that it was not just Stonehenge that was the worship area. There was this whole three-mile-long trek that you took from Stonehenge to another site and from yeah, another site Avery, I think it back was. to Stonehenge. And it was dependent on the time of year because basically the idea was that during the winter solstice you would gather at Stonehenge because it was the symbol of death, bones, and you know that sort of thing. And that's why it was made of rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd trek down the, the ritual avenue that led to the river and then go up, up the, the river, river and, and up then... another <laughs> avenue to Avebury, I think it was, that was made of like – pillars, wood pillars, that mm-hmm. was the sign of life. So you were basically trying to encourage the sun to return by 
making a trek from death into life. And then yeah. at the summer solstice, you would do the reverse. You would meet at Avebury, go down the river, and then collect at Stonehenge again. And when you look at it through the lens of uh, pagan understanding, you go, oh my fucking god, why didn't I see that? And... Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> when I first heard that on the documentary that it was on, I was like, that is the coolest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go study about it, look it up, read about it. There's a couple of um, PBS uh, documentaries, Discovery Channel things, where they talk about this extensively. And how it's not just the, the builders of Stonehenge that are buried inside of Stonehenge. There are grave constructions all around there and even more along the ceremonial trek. And lots more where the destination was. There was an entire village that served uh, the entire route. There was this whole wooden wall that was up to cut Stonehenge off from the other location that they wound up at so that you didn't see one or the other while you were making the trek until this certain point. And it's just like, wow. Yeah. I mean, the ancients really had their rituals down. Like they were obviously very well thought out, very, very heavily symbolic, but really cool in that sense. Mm -hmm. At least what we can discern of them from archeological evidence. Um, but, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, archaic means primitive, and, and quite honestly, there's no chance of that. Um, the yeah. ancient world was fantastically interesting. Um, yeah, it's like I'd never... I was interested in things like the, the theory that the UFOs built stone, uh, Stonehenge and the pyramids and everything. And as I got older, you know, because... Everybody's like, well, they have these, you know, massive blocks that they have to lift up, and they're 60 tons, and people can't pick up that much. You know, so it must have been, you know, technological steam cranes and picking them up and moving them and dropping them right in place. And they had to have crews of people to do this. And, you know, logically that, that makes sense. But then you stop and realize these are people that sailed from Greece to South America in a boat made of reeds. And successfully mm -hmm. got there and came back. Yeah, exactly. These are not I mean, dummies. No, and that's the thing, right? Like, so many people get used to the idea of their the current, you know, world situation where we have technology for doing all this kind of stuff. But they don't really I, – I guess they've become accustomed to discrediting the ingenuity of the species, you know, prior to modern technology. So, you know – trans or circumnav or circum navigating circumnavigating the globe and you know various other things that are that were quite possible at certain points in history um you know people are like well it wasn't possible until you know the middle ages or whenever and it was like no there's a lot of things that we were able to do prior to the Middle Ages. I mean, um, let's, let's take take one that's been in the news lately. Um, Masada. Okay, everybody is like stunned at the Romans do, being able to invade Masada. You got all these Jews that go up into this fortress on top of a mountain. They're completely isolated. They have supplies in there, enough for all this time. But the Romans still managed to conquer it. And they did that because they built a giant flipping ramp. And they pushed a um, battering ram 
up against the wall and bash the wall apart. And everybody's like, this is so incredible. It's like, it's a ramp. It's one of six simple machines. You've got the pulley, you've got the wheel, you've got the ramp, you've got the... The lever. The lever. You know, and we're not like <laughs> these are these are basic things. You don't think they had them back then? Ours you know, is not like, a stupid they've got species. The, they've got the obelisk. The obelisk. It's forty feet tall, weighs ten tons, yet it's only balanced if you push it five inches this way. It'll fall over. You know, and how did they put it there? Did they carve it there? And you know, no, they trucked it up a ramp. And then they took all the sand out from under it, and it just slowly lowered itself down onto the thing, and then they pushed it upright. That was it. <laughs> no magic. It's true. I no mean, aliens. Like, there's no aliens involved, no, you know, crystal power. There's no pyramid power involved in that. It's just, this is what they did, and we need to give them more credit for being able to do that. Okay, so, <laughs> having vented our spleens now um metaphysical and mundane these are two uh these are also the opposite sides of the same coin metaphysical refers to anything that is quote-unquote supernatural okay um mundane is anything that is natural normal common unless Um, you're part of the sca in which case mundane is referring to everything outside the sca true um mundane people would be called uh, muggles in Harry Potter terms. Uh, and I hate that because it's appropriation of a term first off, and second off, it makes us seem like nothing but a fantasy book series. So don't ever let me hear you using it. Um, well, it's weird that the modern pagan movement even bothered to pick that term up because it it was an old term for pothead, basically. Mm-hmm. Or no, it was for weed, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an old term for weed. Okay, if you say so, I don't know. Well, that's that's where it came from. Like she, um, J.K. Rowling used the term as a reference to non-magical folk, but the original term itself was like literally, it was a, a term used for marijuana hmm. because you couldn't say marijuana without people getting all you know defensive and raising their hackles and shit so if you called it muggles people are like hey that's comical and let's smoke some you sure it's not zombie because i know um, in australia they use that for uh cokeheads and potheads um muggles or zombie zombie um i imagine it's well muggles i think was Probably a term in the UK for um, weed, but J.K. Rowling obviously made it famous. Zombie, I could see that being fairly common well, globally. I, just, for I that. just remember it because of uh, the men at work um, down under. I come from a land down under. Um, somebody um, on a hippie trail, head full of zombie. He asked, do you speak in my language? And he gave me a Vegemite sandwich. That's actually in that song? I've never paid attention to the lyrics to that one. That is actually in there, yes. (laughs) I come from a land down under. Yes. Um, Okay, but yeah, those are two sides of the same coin. You've got mundane and you've got metaphysical. Metaphysical is 
the, the, the supernatural, the things that are not of nature. And we have to stress right now that if it exists, it's of nature. It, it is of nature because it exists in nature. Therefore, there is nothing that is supernatural. It is all natural. Now, some parts of it are not understood natural. Um, things that look magical, natural. But lightning was supernatural at one point. So was yep. uh, speed of light, you know. <laughs> it's true. So remember that everything is natural. There's just some things that aren't understood as natural. Uh, one of the things that she puts in here for metaphysical also is a uh, catch-all term referring to subjects of transcendental stuff. Um, transcendental is a little bit different. Uh, that's where you have a massive epiphany, and it transforms your life. That's, that was the goal of the alchemists, was to get that transcendental state. That's what the Buddhists and the, the Hindus are trying to do. It's what the Christians are trying to do, too. They just don't know it. Um, yeah, it's the whole purpose of mystical religion is, is transcending the physical and attaining spiritual perfection. Okay, but that state, while it is new to the person who experiences it, is still natural. Okay, um, mundane is the ordinary, everyday, the whatever. It's the clock on your wall, it's the dog in your, on your couch, it's the signs on the street as you're passing by, it's the car that you're driving. You can make those things, you can infuse those things with magic, you can infuse them with uh, powers and abilities, um, but they're just, they're, they're the natural stuff that's there. <laughs> it's true. And so we go to natural fiber. Now, some people, and I am not one of them, but there are a number of people out there, uh, mostly found among the, the vegetarians and the subgroups, I don't even know what they all are now, um, see natural fiber as the only thing that you should use. Natural fibers refer to fibers that do not come from animal or synthetic sources. Okay, so you're talking about cotton, you're talking about linen, you're talking about flax, you're talking about certain tree fibers in the Philippines. Those are all, quote-unquote, natural fibers. Now, alpaca hair and rabbit fur and dog hair and wool are all natural fibers, too. They are grown on animals. They are hard but a vegan would bite your head off for using any of those. They, they would, because it's exploiting the animal and it's hurting the animal. And I'm sorry, I saw that uh, one sheep that got lost for 12 years and he came back with 20 pounds of wool on him and the, th the poor thing probably couldn't eat did you see that picture i never did there is a pic there was a a, a, a full-grown male sheep uh not a ram that got lost in new zealand and was missing for like 20 years or some ungodly amount i think it's like 12 or something and he came back and he had wool that you could take your arm and push it straight down into the wool on any part of his body, and it would come halfway up your bicep. 
weird. Before your, the tips of your fingers touched his skin. Well, and I think part of that is, is too, that domesticated sheep have been raised to produce massive amounts of wool. So, like, it's to be expected that they have to be sheared or shorn, mm-hmm. if you want to get all technical. Um, whereas a, a wild sheep variety wouldn't need that. Well, you know, yeah, and I understand that. But we're also not harvesting off wild sheep varieties now, are we? I think we should be. <laughs> Why? I just think we should be. You know, so uh, it's it's. I have personal beefs with vegans, mostly because quite a lot of them are just dicks. Well, of course, because you use the term beefs against them. You're supposed to have the personal tofus against them. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's me, and that's on a case-by-case basis. Um, I, I tend to have the same sort of hostilities um, or reservations, I guess, toward vegans, because I've had them on my blog preaching the shit out of, you know, their mindset, and, you know, it's all well and good if you happen to be of that, but it, it originates and a lot of them believe that it's an ancient practice and blah 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 it doesn't come from ancient you know india and all that the modern vegan movement came from 19th century white brits who were like you know what we can afford to eat better so let's do that instead it came from go ahead it came from white rich people okay so and that's fine, and I can see um, why they might think that it came from ancient uh, fakirs and holy men, um, because it is a way to, to you know cleanse the body. And there have been many cases where it's been shown that red meat uh, is very detrimental to the human body if eaten in excess. But that's the point: eaten in excess. Well, You're also and supposed to eat pork and fowl and fish to offset it. But then you get into the argument of like Aboriginal cultures, like the Inuit, who are, you know, in their traditional diet are predominantly eating red meat, right? So where does it become detrimental exactly um, when it's kind of customary for them? And that's well, exactly. where you know that's where the arguments about the racism of veganism come from is the fact that it's trying to impose this lifestyle on the globe when in fact it arose from moneyed you know europeans who were like you know what let's do this Um, what, what i really hate is that there are cases where traditional native foods uh are not available to the people that normally eat them because they become popular vegan uh, stuff. Wouldn't and surprise me. Specifically of quinoa. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, it's become so popular that it the price has gone up so much that the people that grow it and eat it and have been eating it for centuries can't get it now. Well, they can't afford it. I mean, that's it's a very common occurrence that certain kinds of food become overpriced for the people who traditionally grew it because it becomes a commodity in, you know, the Western world. So. Anyway, so off of our soapboxes now. <laughs> <laughs> our soapboxes are important in our shows. They are. They are. Uh, well, they're important to me. 
And please understand, neither Brian nor I have a problem with veganism in practice for yourself. You want to live a vegan lifestyle? Have at it. Go for it. Do it. Don't impose it on somebody else. Don't make your cats and dogs uh, go through it. Oh, God. If if I hear you're a vegan and you're trying to make your cat vegan, I'm going to I'm going to react unpleasantly. Yes. Cats are carnivores, period. They cannot eat. The only way that they can eat um, um, any kind of vegan processed anything is if they kill an animal and eat its stomach with the partially digested um, grains and such that that animal's been eating on. That's the only way they can do it. That's the normal way they do it, too, is, is they eat the grains that their prey have eaten. Yeah, that's that's where I draw the the big line. And when you come at and if somebody is coming at me and screaming veganism in my face, I will be polite until I've asked them to stop. And if they continue going, then I get nasty, and then I get reactionary. So, just fair warning: don't come at me screaming at me because we we're down on veganism on this show. We're not against veganism. We're against militant asshole in your face screaming vegans who are completely ignorant of biology and nature mm. anyhow <laughs> all right um but anyway um just kind of a thing i forgot in the um quote begging portion of our show last time uh joy and i are both available on tumblr if you want to rant at us or discuss things with us as well um joy's at wide hyphen worlds joy.tumblr.com and I'm at cosmic-rebirth.tumblr.com um, We like messages and feedback and interaction there. Um, yes, we do. And, pl- and understand something. We will be polite and we will listen to you as long as you're not an asshole. Once you're yes. an asshole, then all bets are off and the gloves are gone. And, and if you become like the obsessive person that kept ranting at me about veganism i will block you and i have no problem doing that um this person insisted on going for weeks and weeks and weeks messaging me like every other day ranting about how terribly ignorant i was because i wasn't vegan and how i wasn't spiritually advanced because i wasn't claiming to be a buddhist monk as they were and so on so and personally for me I don't have the teeth to be able to be a vegetarian. I I can't eat vegetables. I literally cannot chew them up enough to digest them. Most vegetables make me vomit because they were um, super processed and boiled to death when I was young. And at this point, no matter how they're prepared, I cannot eat them. So I have to be on a meat diet. I do do grains, I do do some vegetables, but start telling me that I'm not advanced because I'm uh, because I eat mostly meat. <laughs> okay. <sighs> Sorry. Well, it's funny because people have this idea that you can't be spiritually advanced unless you become vegan or you can't be, you know, um a moral person because you're not vegan or whatever and it's like, really? Let's not get into that. Please. Okay, um, next. We have neophyte, which is another term for a new person who is just beginning. Uh, Typically, Brian and I call neophytes uh, baby pagans. 
They're, they're or noobs. Are, yeah, I'm or okay noobs. with that term, too. Yeah. Um, let's see. Nitwitchery, show-off, and braggart uh, are all similar terms for a neophyte who is being a dick about it all. And they, them we call fluff bunnies. Because they're, you know, they, they have some knowledge and they're going about their conversion like the uh, rabbit out of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail does. It's they're, true. They're screaming at everybody, attacking them, eating them and killing them, and then going, well, why won't anybody teach me? Yeah, they, they tend to be the hostile ones in, in group discussions who are, like, self-righteous and stuff. And it's it's like, wow, you clearly haven't had much experience or knowledge of anything because otherwise you would know that what you're saying is complete crap. Yeah, you haven't researched anything. There's there's several long articles on AaronsJournal.com that deal with um, uh, fluff bunny pagans and warning signs. So if you are interested, go take a look at them. Uh, occult. There's, uh, we've got nodes, uh, and it's an astrological term. Um, essentially, it's a place where a planet or the moon crosses the plane of the ecliptic that the Earth is on. Okay? This is calculated because it is, it is assumed that the Earth is on plane zero. And all the other planets are out of alignment with the Earth. They start high, they go low, they come back high, they go low. Okay? Anytime a planet or the moon crosses that plane that we are on and our orbit is on, that's when you have uh, a node. Okay? What this means in the overall astrology part, I have no clue. <laughs> I was just going to say, um... That's terminology I've never had to use, so... So, if you're into astrology, because we've defined several other astrology things, hey, go for it, now you know. <laughs> and knowing oh. is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Oh, sorry. Oh, showing my age there. <laughs> oh, okay. it's okay. Okay, now, occult is a catch-all term for, literally, hidden information. That is the literal definition of occult. Any information that you don't know and is hidden away is occult information. <laughs> and that doesn't specifically mean metaphysical or spiritual information either. It's like, if, if you don't know someone's phone number, it's occult to you. Mm -hmm. And if they go out of their way to keep it secret from you, it's, a, it's occult information. So, you know, this is one of those that has come to mean metaphysical and um, spiritual information because most of that information is hidden from other people until they actually go through the rituals, rites, practices, uh, rub the blue mud in their navel um, to be part of that group and have that information. Okay. Exactly. So, yeah, occult means hidden information. <laughs> and for some reason, mo the modern use of it tends to imply darkness or, like, ulterior motives. Um, well, it it's not what that meant. Yeah, it started being applied to the secret information from the Templars. And when the Templars got their huge bad reputation uh, and were wiped out uh, in their last stronghold, um, the information that they had was secret. 
It was kept that way. It was protected as secret information. And that's when, uh, because the, the Templars were shown as demon-worshipping Christians who sacrificed and ritually slayed people in the name of God, um, <laughs> they got this really horrid reputation, and the appellation of occult information in their archives, as it got moved out to the rest of the world with the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons, because the Freemasons have some of it, there you go. That's where it started getting its bad rap of all occult information is terrible, secret demon information. Exactly. <clears throat> And the reality is, too, um, that it was only one branch of the church that happened to be in charge that, you know, went around accusing everyone of being against the church um, as an overall thing. Because there are actually branches, um, schools of thought within the Catholic Church that are all differing in their approaches. It was typically um, the Dominicans that were the, the hounds of God and would investigate... Um, things in the Inquisition. Um, the previous pope to this one uh, was the head of the Dominican Inquisition in modern times. It's one of the reasons why he got elected pope. Um, really? Benedict yeah. was a Dominican? Yes, he was. Silly bastard. And Whereas I'm guessing Pope Francis was more likely a, a Actually, the current, the, the current pope is a Jesuit. Yeah, because actually the, the Franciscans are, are forbidden from taking office like that. So they could never be a pope. You could never have a Franciscan pope. Yeah, I thought it was... You could have anyone cool. adopt the name, but it would never actually be a Franciscan in charge. Okay, next term is ordains. <laughs> okay. No, y'all got to understand, we could get off onto the Catholic Church for quite some time, and we would not only use up the other 50 minutes left in this show, but probably another two hours in another show, just on that stuff. So, and plus I want to get my facts together before we actually start ripping into them, because um, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of things I don't understand about it, and we need Mary, goddess of all research here, because she used to be Catholic. Well then. Yeah, so okay, um ordains. This is this does not mean to get um vested as a priest or priestess of the craft. No, this these are the archaic laws of uh Gardnerian Wicca. They were adopted by several other groups, um Alexandrian, uh I think uh not Civil League, um oh god, Sabrina. Um, um, I don't recall her name. She had a... She, okay, there's a, a... There's another book that I had reviewed. It's uh, Lady Sabrina with um, her tradition that supposedly goes back to medieval times, which is impossible because it's based Clearly, on, because she said lady. Yeah, and it's based... It's, it's almost a carbon copy of Gardnerian Wicca, right down to the Ordains. The Ordains is 161 laws... Or 162, depending upon who you talk to, because they take one law and break it into two parts. Uh, that say things like, if a priest is crossing, the if a priest, priest is walking towards you, you must cross the street and spit on the ground to, to throw his um, god's-like eye off of you, so he doesn't spot you as a, as a witch. 
Uh, don't barter for your tools because you, if you barter for them, you cheapen them. Duh. Um, Weird. Don't um, don't tell anybody that you're a witch because there's never a witch that's alone, and um, they will find others. Make your pentacles of wax so that you can throw it easily into the fire when the inquisitors come to you. And it's all these really dumb, stupid archaic laws. rules that don't matter anymore. Yeah. Um, I've heard the spelling A R D A Y N E S as well. Ardanes. Yeah, R R D A I N A R D A I N. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of those. But it's it's 161 laws of Wicca. If you type in 161 laws of Wicca, you will find them. Um, there's some decent advice in there. Um, like don't try to cheat people that are into craft with you. Uh, don't try to make a profit off of them. But there's a lot of stuff that's just stupid shit and can be dispensed with, especially in these days. They are remnants of paranoid delusions that everybody is out to get me uh, so that I can be more special than now. Well, wouldn't that have also included the whole like wearing black for ritual kind of thing because of the cloak of night? Because yeah. I can't recall, I've, I've never actually looked up the Ardanes. I've heard reference to them yeah. in number, like a number of places, but uh, I think so. I've read through them, but it was like 15 years ago when I did, and when I did it, uh, I did um, a in-depth critique of them, uh, where I took sections of it and went, okay, now this section is just silly. <laughs> why, why do you have to be worried about the Catholic priest walking down the street? He doesn't have a holy power. You, he only has a holy power because you believe he has a holy power. Just ignore him. True. You know? <laughs> Stuff like that. It's true. It's not like those those priests are living their lives out to get you. Oh, there was. If a, they are, then they have nothing better to do with their time. There was a thing um, amongst the ex Mormons because I used to be Mormon. Uh, where some where you're always told when you go to the temple that God has a special power to be able to prevent anybody who is not supposed to be there and not worthy to be in the temple from being there. And these four people who were not Mormon, who had, were apostate, were about as smoking, drinking, cigarettes, you know, uh, multiple marriages, divorces, things like that, went into the temple and went through all the sacred rites. And it was like, okay, they don't have... That just disproved the holy power of the priests there, you know, completely. Yeah. And <laughs> made it the, the special discretion. <clears throat> it's like, okay, you know, people are people. If you're acting in a manner that looks suspicious, of course they're going to look at you. If you're just doing what looks to be right and reasonable in that time, guess Besides, what? Besides, modern Mormons, as far as I've ever met, like in the past 15 years, are not so reserved anymore. They have changed, and some of the changes I'm really, really shocked by. Um, when I was in the church, it was... Gay people could be gay all they wanted as long as they didn't practice being gay. You can. Um, ah, yes. It's fine that you're gay. Just don't practice that. Yeah. Don't don't have sex with the person that you love. Don't kiss the person that you love. You have to get married and have children anyway. And you know, if you molest children, oh well, we'll just move you to a different ward. You know, and it's like, 
excuse me, you're you're sentencing this poor person to torture, mental and spiritual torture, because you can't handle the fact that they love somebody of the same sex as them. You know, I went through being trans. I went through the the depths of hell because I was evil and dirty and aberrant, and I should just die because I wanted to put on girls' clothes. You know, and this is not something that you do to members, the people that you say that you love and that you care about. You know, and then I find see all the that they not only have same-sex marriage now in Utah, but the Mormon Church supports it. And I'm like, excuse the fuck out of me. <laughs> Who the hell are you? Well, I I think they've gotten laid back. I mean, when I was still a seeker back in my late teens <laughs> and talking to um, missionaries and stuff. Um, I remember they were typically kind of cookie cutter, you know, um, <laughs> Stepford Mormons. Yeah, essentially. And then later on I was involved, um, with, um, I guess it was, I was doing some scout leader training in a Mormon church. Um, and some of the members that were in the session were the Mormons who were attending that church. And so they were learning to be leaders for their, you know, group. Right. And I remember one of them coming in with, like, piercings of, you know, and, like, earplugs and, um, you know, like, mohawk and that sort of thing. And it was like, Wow. I yeah. didn't really think you could be a Mormon and do that. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually that's actually a change from the official policy. The official policy was that you can't decorate your body. Tattoos were not allowed. You couldn't get to the temple if you had tattoos. Men with ear piercings weren't allowed to go to the temple. Obviously, there was no power of God blocking them at the door because I'm sure people with hidden tattoos were walking in and out of that place. I'm sure. I, I mean, it's... See, it's it was being seen as defacing the work of God. Now, why they would see that as being defacing the work of God and not blasting the marble uh, blocks out of the mountains to build a temple of stacked marble blocks, or even something as simple as you know women putting on makeup. I mean, seriously. Yeah. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's just past. It's it's they've changed out of all recognition. And, you know, I try to tell my mother what I went through when I was in the church, and she's still an active Mormon, and she's telling me, no, you're wrong, that's not what it was, that's not what it was, no, 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 because they have changed, you know. Well, I think every every group, once it reaches a certain point, has to adapt to the modern times. I mean, you look at the way the Catholic Church went through centuries of its crap and then vatican ii comes along and suddenly they're like oh yeah by the way let's instead of holding all masses in latin which nobody understands Hold let's them in the native have tongue. them in the language yeah let's have them in languages people understand so they know what the hell they're doing um you know instead of having the priest face the uh back of the church and away from everyone let's turn them around and have them preach at people and so on so i mean like all these things were hardcore traditions for centuries until, you know, V2 went, eh, let's go for it, you know, yeah. let's change it up a bit. So it, it makes sense that the Mormon church would have to, you know, hit 
Well, and I mean, Jesus, the Mormon church has gone through so many changes in its history. It's like, oh, plural wives? Sure, what the hell? That That's an ordained from God. Yeah, um, for, eternal, and then, for all time oh, wait. and eternity. In the, in the actual passage in the Pearl of Great Price where you can have multiple wives, it says in there that this is an ordinance for all time and eternity. You know, that it's never going to be countermanded. And, you know, oh, you want to join the United States? Well, you got to get rid of the polygamy. Uh, okay, we'll drop that. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, like, dark skin is a curse from God. And, and suddenly, you know, the late 70s come around. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Never, That's not so politically correct. Yeah, Let's they haven't let ever the actually repealed that. back. They haven't ever actually repealed that. Usually an announcement comes out from the president um, in And the apostles Utah, and, and all them silliness. Yeah, and they never sent out anything about that. It's just a practice that just sort of stopped being practiced. Probably because it was a little awkward. Probably. Okay, back to our list again. <laughs> we didn't right. promise we were going to get through the whole thing this time. Mm. Palomancy. Uh, remember that we said before Mancy is magic with? Well, Palo is with a pendulum. So this is magic with a pendulum. Uh, divination with a pendulum. It is divining and, you know, the whole witching, water witching thing and all that. Dowsing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's true. Then we get to palmistry. We've already talked about that. And then we get to pentacle and pentagram. Now, these are two terms that I left in here, even though they're common as, as household dishwater, because people get them mixed up constantly. A pentacle is the star inside of the circle. A pentagram is the star by itself. Yep. Okay. Typically, these are up the, with one point uh, pointing upward. Um, they are both used for protection. Uh, the pentacle is used as containment as well. Okay, so you have the the five-sided star, air, earth, fire, water, spirit. You have the center of the star where you're standing. The circle around it protects and contains. Okay. The pentacle by itself is just air, earth, fire, water, spirit, and you're standing in the center. Okay, Keep these separate, because when you're wearing just a star, you have a pentagram. If you have the circle around it, it is a pentacle. Okay. And interestingly enough, too, um, speaking in terms of the whole point up thing, um, gardenarians use a two-point up or, quote, inverted pentacle to denote their second degree. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not necessarily going to refer to Satanists in every instance that you see an inverted pentacle. Right. Um, sometimes it'll be a second degree, like, gardenarian. Yeah, second degree gardenarians are supposed to sign uh, missives to the coven, to the priest, priestesses, with an inverted pentagram. Okay. So that's but, an important thing to remember when you're going to insult people by calling them Satanists and they're not. Yeah. Um, everybody has tends to, to associate this with you know demon worship and stuff. The only reason that you associate it with demon worship is because it is a protective sigil. 
It is a design that is used for protection, used for containment, and it is used in demonology. It's also used in the Key of Solomon and the... Um, I don't know what you would call that, where you're working with angels and minor godlings, but that type of stuff. Uh, it's um, used uh, in magical acts to seal something to an object. Um, it's used for blessing. Um, I've drawn pent pentagrams on people's foreheads when they come into the circle. I've drawn pentacles, too. You know, it's so it, it's it's just another symbol that is used for protection and containment, and that's it. Yep. So, um, let's see, da 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 da. Proselytizing. If you don't know what this means, you need to go back to the Christian churches that you came from, and learn from there. Proselytizing is getting up in someone's faces and telling them about the good news of your deity, of your choice, um, and doing it in a very vigorous manner that kind of reminds people of uh, a used car salesman. Um, and it also... The high-pressure commission salespeople. Pretty much. And it doesn't really allow the person <coughs> that you're talking to and out to leave politely. Okay? Um, but at the same time, political movements and uh, dietary movements can also be proselytizing yeah. um, to the annoyance of people who don't follow their ways so as we've said several times on this show at various points the whole goal of being a pagan being solitary being um one with your deities is to be the best representative of them on the earth that you can be getting in someone's face and screaming about how wonderful dionysus is because you can get drunk and fall down and nobody's going to care is not really the best way to represent him Unless you're falling down drunk. In that case... <laughs> well, and if you think back to things like... Um, uh, I want to say Jim Morrison's a really good example of that. His, his, <clears throat> his whole outlook on life was very Dionysian. It was very much about ecstasy and experience and that kind of thing. Um, unfortunately, it can take people down a very destructive road if they do get too fixated on the you know constant experience of things that are not so good but yep. that's what a Dionysian experience is supposed to be it's supposed to be about ec ecstasy and experience and all that kind of thing not about um, statically sharing your epiphanies with other people exactly that's just annoying and nobody cares Okay, psychometry is uh, reading energy on an object and being able to, I guess the best word would be scry uh, with that. Um, essentially, all objects have vibrations to them. I mean, they're, they're composed of atoms. Atoms are always vibrating. Subatomic particles, the string theory, they're all vibrating. So everything has vibrations to them. A, psychom a, a psychometrist, uh, object reader, um, somebody with ESP, because this gets thrown into the ESP group all the time, can take that object, can read by those energetic vibrations what that object has, the history of that object, who owned it, what they were feeling, 
very motions, and can give you either a history of it or a history of the person that has it. Okay. Usually those things have to be in the person's presence for some length of time. They usually have to be present when a very energetic something happens um, that causes that energy to imprint on that object. Okay. Um, generally, only empaths can do this. There are some very strong telepaths that can do it as well. Um, but they don't get the emotional overtones. They can just tell you what they see and what they're hearing. And, <clears throat> and sometimes you'll see the term used in, in combination with uh, clairvoyance as well. Mm. Yes. Uh, okay, runes. Runes are a divination tool, but they're also a writing. Uh, there are two main sets of, or three main sets of runes that you're probably going to encounter. We're just going to talk about two of them because the third one's kind of silly. Uh, the first set are the Futhark runes. Uh, They're the Germanic writing script. There's about 16 different ways of doing it depending upon the time period you're looking at because uh, sounds were added and dropped to that alphabet. Um, but the Elder Futhark is typically what they're talking about when they talk about Futhark runes. And that's the set you'll get when you buy your typical rune set in a you know New Age store on Amazon or whatever. Right. It's um, three groups of eight, so that's 24 runes. Uh, if it has a blank rune, uh, good. Put it in your pocket and save it for when you lose one of them. Exactly. Your own new rune, because the weird rune that is in Bloom's book is crap. Now, that being said, I can understand why he included it and why he has it as one of the runes for interpretation. But every single Futhark scholar, Germanic scholar, says that this is a rune that was made up that is crap and should not be in there. Exactly, okay. because, I mean, that would be like playing Scrabble with spaces. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, what would be the point of that? <laughs> yeah. The other set of runes that are most commonly referred to when you're talking about runes are the Oam runes, the Agam runes. Yes. Uh, they are the Celtic version of the Germanic runes. Okay? Uh, pretty much the same. It, it's 20 runes. Uh, they're designed to be drawn, uh, carved into stone, drawn on sticks, things like that. In both cases, uh, the runes were used as a writing form for the educated not necessarily as an esoteric divination set that they will tell you they are. Okay? It's You'll true. You'll find rune scripts all over the place in Germany that say uh, Flavius makes good combs <laughs> and are advertising for something. You'll find rune scripts in uh, Ireland that say uh, Palace has the best uh, sheep. You <laughs> know? Or something like that. Now, wouldn't you find that better in Scotland? Or something. I don't know. I do know that uh, Kukulain, uh defeated an army with the, with the clever use of runes because um, he did up this huge magical rune script on a log that the army was going to have to cross, and they couldn't cross it until they deciphered it. It took them three days to do so. So apparently he was dealing with an obsessive-compulsive army is what he was dealing with. Actually, it's more like uh, they were used... The, the, the Ogham scripts uh, in Celtic life 
were mostly used by druids to convey information from one druid to another, like this route is safe, uh, this one is, this is good water, um, sleep here, uh, don't go over there, it's poison ivy, stuff like that. That's uh, like the hobo symbols that they used to use in like the Depression era. Exactly. It's exactly like that. But the study of these things were so limited to uh, the Druids and the people trained by the Druids that not everybody could read them. So the Druids, you know, treated them like a mystery thing. Said, Ooh, they're, oh, that's, that's a symbol. It's, you don't want to mess with that one. I mean, you, you, just, you just want to go over there. So people started believing that these were esoteric symbols, that these were occult symbols, and they were occult symbols. Um, so him writing this on a log, and here comes the army, and they're marching along, and they see these runes. They don't know what they say. It could be a magic spell. So it's they true. stopped, <coughs> deciphered it, and once they deciphered it, they went, oh, he's just fucking with us. And crossed the barrier and kept going. But he delayed them for three days. And that Which was the point. Which pivotal for the, the, the planning of their, their destruction. Exactly. The last set of runes that you're probably going to hear about is the Theban runes. And these Look. are another set of archaic items. Theban runes are harder to write in than anything that I've seen, including Arabic. <laughs> because supposedly they're taken from Thebes and it's a whole bunch of curls the only thing that I can think that would be worse to, to write in would be circular Gallifreyan <laughs> no idea no idea? you've never no seen no idea what circular Gallifreyan is circular Gallifreyan is, is a cipher where you take circles and depending upon the number of lines in the circles or dots in the circles or the number of circles inside the circles depends on what letter it is. You arrange these in circles. So you have this word, and around the outside edge of this circle is a whole bunch of other little circles. That is a cipher that says, today. And then you take that set of circles, you miniaturize it and put it on one section of an even bigger circle. And then the next circle, clockwise, has another set of circles that say, you. That's and it strange. And going around Easy. like that. That's what Dr. Who's uh, TARDIS is written like. All those well, things that are above the, <clears throat> the, the helm, that's circular Gallifreyan. And it says stuff. I suppose, I suppose someone has to have invented something like that. Yeah, it was really, really cool. But Theban is um, <clears throat> curves and straight lines that yes. uh, make lots of bouncy mo movements. Where Arabic is swooping with dots. And um, Hebrew is lines with dots. It's true. Theban is humpy lines with dots. And it's another cipher. It's just a simple substitution cipher. They've got A, B, C, D all the way through Z which, if it was actually Theban script from Thebes, uh, they wouldn't have some of those letters in there. But they've got them, so it's a substitution cipher. This is how you know that it's modern invention. Well, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. yeah, I think it was sort of Middle Ages, like Renaissance period, that it came up in, because it really isn't um, ancient 
feeling when you study it. Yeah. I mean, I remember studying it when I was a kid, but it was just like too complicated for writing. I was just yeah. like, this is going to take forever. And I don't want to, I, I, honestly, I thought, yes, when I get into to Wicca, I will write my book of shadows in a mystic rune, and I will read it like that, and I will do all of this. And I got into it, and I'm looking at these rituals, and I'm going, I'm going to write this in a substitution cipher that I can't read. And I'm going to do it in pen, uh, using the ruled lines on my notebook paper. And I'm expected to read this verbatim in a flickering candlelight situation outside. Yeah, exactly. Right. That was my big thing, too. Because, like, even it's hard enough to learn when you don't plan to use it, like, for regular use. Um, but there – I mean, I, when I was a kid, there were people who would, who were like, yeah, you can't really be Wiccan unless you you can read and write in Theban. Oh, like, and angelic and passing the well, river. Those are two more, but they're never those used two. anymore. But yeah, like I remember when you they had this idea that you couldn't possibly be truly wicked unless you could write in Theban, yeah. and that comes out of like the Gardnerian Alexandrian school of yeah. thought because they used that for all their tools and all their spells and all this kind of stuff, and it was like, and, uh, it, and it, yeah, and don't don't misunderstand us. Everyday use, this is it's it's crappy, it's sucky. You probably won't ever use it, but using it as uh, a bind rune on uh, a tool or on an amulet or something like that, fantastic. Because what happens is, is that as you're trying to write the the rune on there, you're focusing on that rune and on that letter, <laughs> and that's putting more of your energy into whatever that is. So yeah, use it for that. But you're not going to need to be able to read it. <laughs> exactly. That's that was my big thing with it. Was like, yeah, I could see using it for spells once in a very rare while, but trying to use it on a regular basis, again, same argument as you. I mean, it, yeah. it just didn't make any sense. You know, trying to write my book of shadows in Theban and then having to try and translate that in the candlelight, you know, at night, kind of yeah. thing. All because you want to be ooey-ooey mystical and hide it from people that are probably never going to look at it anyhow. Well, most people who ever saw my pentacles and stuff were like, what's that? And then I might explain it. And sometimes, I mean, the majority of times, people just didn't care. Because it yeah. was like, oh, it's Brian and his eccentricity again. Whatever. He's being strange. So most people just didn't give a shit. So I never had to hide any of my mystical stuff. So, there is one other rune that you might encounter, and that's called the Witch's Rune. Uh, this is something straight out of Gardnerian. Uh, it's Evo Evo um, Azeroth, Evo Evo Echo Echo something else. This is straight out of ceremonial uh, magic. Uh, it's basically a Jewish chant, a Hebrew chant, uh, <laughs> to summon uh, some of the angels to come help you. Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's there's a portion in uh, Gardnerian magic, in, in, at least Gardnerian ritual, that that goes EO, EO, something or other. And it's actually the four letters of the Hebrew alphabet that spell out, strangely enough, considering that a kosher um, Torah 
is not like they never used the four Hebrew letters for YHVH, Yahweh, what is it's been translated, but they use Phoenician letters for the name of God. And they're not allowed to change that. Weird. Yeah, it, it's like every other letter in the entire scroll is Hebrew, except where they, they mention the four letter name of God, the Tetragrammaton. It's in Phoenician rune, like Phoenician letters. Wow. Okay. Well, learn something else. But that's well, and the that's the funny thing, because like the Rosicrucians and most esoteric orders, when they use the four letters, are using the Hebrew. Right. I don't know. I just remember that I was reading through the Key of Solomon because <clears throat> I was going to be teaching um, a course in high magic and. I'm sorry, you can't get any more high Episcopagan uh, than uh, the Key of Solomon and all the other books that go with it. Uh, so, and I came across that and I went, is that where that came from? Shit! Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, SCA. You're going to hear this occasionally, and I mean very occasionally, um, in pagan settings and in worship settings. However, in the socializing settings, you're going to hear it a lot. This is short for the Society for Creative Anachronisms. Okay, this is a society um, of reenactors that want to live in the Dark Ages. And I've got some problems with them, but they, they actually do do a lot of good work in that they preserve a lot of the how-to-make-it-on-your-own uh, craft things. And... Um, they are rediscovering techniques for fighting in swords and armor, uh, techniques in using uh, archery, and assaulting fixed positions in with swords and armor, and a lot of the um, things like the the Battle of Helm's Keep in um, uh, the Lord of the Rings, the the whole sequence of how they were fighting in the ebb and flow and all of that came directly from the fights in the Society for Creative Anachronisms. Okay. Well, <clears throat> and the interesting thing, too, is that um, they are, are I mean, they, they, they state quite boldly that they're not a reenactment group. They're kind of, I mean, the, the word anachronistic says in, in its thing, I mean, they're, they're not keeping specifically in time. They do try their best, but they also realize that in the Middle Ages, there was a high chance that you would be dead by 40 because of disease or malnutrition yeah. or what have you. So and that's one of the personal problems <clears throat> that I have. Everybody in there is considered to be uh, lower nobility or up. Nobody's peasants. Nobody is in the church. Nobody is in um, the, the merchant class. Nobody is uh, the beggar with the sores and stuff. They're all minor nobility and up all the way to emperors. A lot of the time there are most people like that. And that was kind of the weird thing for me because when I was interested in it back in, again, my late teens, early twenties, I was tempted to become, you know, a Franciscan friar in, you know, in the middle ages. Cause it was easy to be because yeah. there was really no difference in costume between now and then. <laughs> um, and so it was like, yeah, I could totally do that. And, they actually had at a, a what what Americans would call Cub Scout camp. Um, 
a, a cub camp that I was part of, we had the SCA visit um, because our theme for that week was knights and that sort of thing. So we had people displaying the fighting and we did like the, the dances, by the way, if you want to learn like country folky dances that are a lot of fun, go to the SCA dances. They're hilarious. Oh the gay Gordon will wear your ass out. They are fucking like hilarious. They're so awesome. All you um, do is walk forward four steps, turn, walk backwards for four steps, <clears> do a little jig, and then walk forward four steps, turn, walk backwards for four steps. But it wears you the, de- the fuck out. Oh, yeah, I was absolutely. dead by the end of that one. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, during that week, we had them visit, and I did meet someone who had a – he had a – he was a peasant. He was like 16 or something. He was there with his mom who was like nobility. And they. <laughs> I laughed because their two characters, being completely unrelated, would flirt with each other. And I was kind of like, that's a little awkward, isn't it? No, it's totally normal in the SDA because yeah. we're not actually related characters. We're just two separate individuals doing our own thing. And I was like, okay, then, right on. Yeah, I went to uh, an arts and sciences uh, where I was a merchant. And everybody was like, wow, this is original. And I was a chandler, somebody who makes candles. And I made custom (laughs) beeswax candles right there in front of you, and I sold out. I was the only person that made any any money there. There were four other merchants. They didn't make a profit. I came home with something like $250 in my pocket. <laughs> I remember like, the first time I did an event, like the the visit of those people to our, our camp inspired me to go try a real SDA event. So I went with a friend, and they had to lend us these little smocks that were, you know, pseudo-peasant costumes because we didn't have our own gear and we wandered through the whole place and and one of the things i spent most of the day doing was the dances because we saw some of the people that had been there at camp and they were like dragging us in to the dances so we spent a good couple of hours dancing that day and then it was all these dances that were like hilarious because the the woman that had visited us she was she had to be like six four or something like that her character was a viking character of course um and she was just gigantic she was hilariously funny and she insisted that i dance with her and i'm 510 and i felt dwarfed by her because there were people around us i was taller than you know people i was pretty close to the same height as and then and i was like this is really kind of weird um but apparently it has something to do with coronation or something we didn't get to stay long enough for that but yeah um if you get a chance to go to the sca events do it by all means they're Um, very fun the the reason that we're bringing up the sca is there's three groups that sort of seem to be incestuously twined together so that if you find a person that's a member of one group, they're probably going to be members of the other two as well. And that's the SCA, uh, paper gaming like Dungeons and Dragons, and Pagans. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I started out in uh, paper gaming 
uh, with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I got into um, the SCA because of that, and you know, you're you're playing medieval characters anyway, so it's just a natural step forward to want to play your character in real life and learn, you know, the the blocking of the moves and the hitting and what that armor feels like when you're trying to run in it and things like that. And then at every single event I've ever been to in the SCA, there have been a, a, a group of active pe- practicing pagans of some flavor that have gotten together and had their own uh, drunken revel while the rest of the parties are going on. Uh, sometimes sometimes they even do rituals, you know, and get the whole lights and everything, and then you've got all of that esoteric everything pulled in, too. You said oh, yeah. something. Sorry, uh, it, it occurred to me that around a decade ago, there was talk online of getting some sort of organized mark so that you could identify the pagans among the SCA members. Uh, and it was talking about, like, a multicolored belt or something like that, that that had like brown and green and all these naturey colors so that you could identify a pagan just by looking at them mm-hmm. um and i thought that was kind of interesting um primarily because i considered for a time going you know into a druid role and then i thought no that's iron age so it wouldn't work um <laughs> <laughs> well actually but, i mean there's a lot a lot of people that came to paganism uh, through one of those two um, gateway addictions, uh, either the either the SCA or the or the paper gaming, one of the two, because it's not a hell of a long step. I finally, after meditating on this for a long time, I figured out why that happens. Here you have a collection of people who have brilliant creative minds that are getting together and sharing that creative sense between them, okay? And then you have one set that is doing it all in their head, and you have another set that's actually doing it physically. To think that this would attract people that had actual psychic gifts, and I can't think of a better training ground for visualization than uh, the paper RPGs. I mean, I just can't. Because you have a dungeon master, he's sitting there, he's got a book in front of him, he's got dice in front of him, and there's a pencil, there's a big screen that's keeping what he's seeing from what you're seeing. You're sitting there, you have a paper. On that paper is all the characteristics of your character and what they can do. He describes a a scene to you. You're walking down a hallway. It's dark and there's slime on the walls, and it's a musty smell, and it's very heavy atmosphere. And you open a door, and you walk in, and there's, an, there's this big green monster that's standing seven and a half feet tall with giant tusks coming out of the bottom of their mouths, staring at you. That is now charging. What are you doing? You can't get better training for visualization than that. Because not only do you have to visualize the opponent, you have to visualize yourself. Then you have to visualize yourself in a three-dimensional space. And you have to visualize him coming at you, you moving, how he's swinging and how you're swinging. Based on what you you said. Consider the fact that you might be hitting the walls if you swing in a certain way or whatever. Um, See, it's funny. (laughs) Three quarters of... Three quarters of my gaming group had some kind of psychic gift, 
and I realized that that was why. It's because it's a it's a pagan visualization training ground. Anyway. Well, it's funny because when I was in high school, I had two friends. One was a paper gamer, and the other was an SCA member. And I was the pagan in the trio, and it was like I wanted to be part of the SCA because the paper gaming wasn't really, you know, fascinating enough to me. Um, but I could see the appeal of it, and the paper gamer wanted to be pagan, but was kind of weirded out by the esoteric nature of it, so he <laughs> end up being involved. And the SCA guy was like, yeah, I'm not really drawn to the paganism, but I'm a paper gamer and an SCA member. And I was like, <laughs> that's so weird. Like, What is that with us? Hey, like, perfect, the perfect trifecta there. Well, it was, it was so weird in that way because those exact three groups were present in each, each of us three, and mm-hmm. there was overlap. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I was a member of all three. I enjoyed my time as a member of the SCA. It taught me some valuable skills uh, with um, fighting and mechanics of the body motion and uh, how people have been treated over the centuries. Uh, the, the candle making, you know, was certainly part of that. Um, I enjoyed, I still enjoy RPGs. Um, I just can't find anybody to play with. And I started out in paganism coming from uh, the new age that my grandmother was teaching me, uh, but then seeing elements in the paper gaming of the religions that intrigued me, and then seeing those same elements in the SCA, and then starting to dig a little deeper. And I've been doing uh, Wicca and paganism since 1991. So you're talking about, what, 24 years? Yeah, more? exactly. You know, and I could yeah. argue. I'm arguably Granny Trad, because Grandma started my started the initial interest, and then I met all these psychically aware people who had information. Who started sharing it with me, and I shared my information with them, and it just sort of became this gestalt of everything. <coughs> so yeah. that's another two hours used up, <laughs> and we're still not exactly. through our list. <laughs> I didn't expect we would be. Okay, so since Brian did it last time, I'm going to do it this time. Um, yes, this is a, an ongoing thing for us, and we love hearing back from all of you. So please, if you find this hilarious, if you find this humorous, if you find that you have uh, an SCA story that you want to share with us, please get in touch with us through the, the website, uh, magicalmusings.net. There is no K in magical music. It's all in one word. Uh, or email us, joy or brian at magicalmusings.net. Uh, we can also be reached at our various Tumblr pages, which are pretty much our personal diaries. Um, <laughs> I'm at uh, wide-worlds-joy.tumblr.com, and Brian is at cosmic-rebirth.tumblr.com. Um, we love hearing from you. We love getting feedback. We love hearing ideas that you may have for shows or people that we can get on the show or things we might talk about um, because, honestly, uh, we're running out of show ideas here. <laughs> so we, we need some feedback here. <laughs> this vocabulary thing was actually not intended to be three episodes more long. than one shows, but yeah. that's 
that's just how it ended up. Hey, so we got we got more for the hook for later on. It's <laughs> but true. Yeah. Um. And also, while we've got you know some <clears throat> sp- a couple of sponsors that are donating to help us uh, cover the website costs, um, there are other expenses. And Lord knows, I'd love to be able to take a salary home from doing this. <laughs> you know, but that's probably not going to happen for quite some time. Um, so yes, any donations would be wonderful. So that's it for this episode. We're going to record another two-hour episode uh, after this one, Brian. Um, I think I could pull that off. Yeah. Okay. Uh, bathroom breaks and water and stuff like that, and then we'll do it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so look out for uh, episode three <laughs> in our continuing series of, <laughs> of pagan terms. <laughs> <laughs> We've not even made a third of the list in this episode. You know that. Uh, actually, well, from what I'm looking at, we got about a third of the way through. We got a third of the way last time. We got a third of the way this time. I guess. Maybe. I don't know. We have a page and a half of general terminology and then various and sundry specific things. Yes. So. And then, of course, we're going to be doing all of the uh, riffing and talking about and... Clearly. Let Lily out. So, okay. So, um, join us whenever the next episode is posted. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk to you then. Have a good one, folks. <laughs>